Well, listen, if there's one thing that I know, I know that our kids are learning about missions at church. Are they learning it at home? Are mom and dad learning the same lessons? You see, there's one thing that I know about human nature. We talk about what we're most interested in. There's a young man in our church, and uh, I don't see him here this morning, but he got a brand new shiny motorcycle. Except it's not a brand new shiny motorcycle. It's a brand new shiny motorcycle that looks like an old-fashioned motorcycle. It's got a sidecar. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. And so you know what happens? He gets this new shiny motorcycle. Guess who he tells? He wants to show it off. You want to take it for a spin? You want to ride in the sidecar? With you, no way. Not getting in that thing. But we talk about what we're interested in. We talk about our new boat. We talk about our new phone. We talk about a new thing. And I think sometimes Jesus loses some of his luster. You know, enough life happens and the shine gets worn off. And, you know, we, get, we take it for granted. And one of the ways I think that this happens is that we don't talk about Jesus to the people that we care about the most. I don't know how long ago it was, but one of the telephone companies had, I think it was your five. You know, you could pick five people, and if it was your five people, you could make unlimited phone calls, and there's text and pictures or whatever, and it doesn't cost you anything. So here's my question. Outside of your circle, outside of your five, what do you do with the rest of humanity? And the truth is probably not much. You don't even think about them. There can be a person standing right in front of you in the grocery market line, and it might be that, in your mind, it's not even like they exist. I was uh, jogging the other day. I know, hard to believe. And um, <laughs> I, I got totally freaked out because there was a guy jogging right behind me, and his footfalls were just the same as mine, so I didn't hear him. So when he actually kind of showed up, I thought, what in the world? Well, then later on, my wife was running right behind me, and I didn't know it. I thought, if this guy's behind me again, I'm going to deck him. And I turn around, and it's my, it's my wife. And so, you know, when I saw that this guy was following me, I thought, if you're going to follow that close, we're going to have a conversation. Take the time to get to know somebody. Because the challenge is life is so busy, and it's so complex, and our schedules are so full that we never take the time to talk, talk to people, let alone talk to them about something that is important like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15 at the very end, continuing our series on the king and his kingdom. And the last time we uh, were in Matthew chapter 15 was right before Easter. And we left Jesus in the pagan land of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus had left the Holy Lands, and he had, um, he had traveled to the Mediterranean coast, to the towns of Tyre and Sidon. And in the, that story, we saw a little bit about what Jesus thought of people outside his circle, and it's going to inform what our concern should be too. And when he goes to Tyre and Sidon, he meets this uh, woman. The politically correct term would be that she is a um, Syrophoenician woman. So if she was filling out a government form, that would be the box that she checks. Syrophoenician. I've never seen that on a government form, but that would be the thing that she would fill out. Matthew, writing to Jewish believers, calls her what she is. She's a Canaanite. One of Israel's ancient enemies, and she's got a huge problem. She's got a daughter who is, the Bible says, cruelly, demon possession. Now, demon possession sounds pretty cruel to begin with, but this was a particular form of demon possession that was particularly vile and cruel. Here's the great thing that this woman has. She knows who Jesus is, and she knows that, she, that he can help her daughter with her problem. So she has a terrible problem, but she brings it to the right person, right place, right time. Jesus gets into a very interesting dialogue on whether it's okay for him as the Jewish Messiah to help a Gentile Canaanite woman. And after some comments on her faith, he cures her daughter immediately. 
This is super significant in the way Matthew's gospel unfolds because it's the first time that Jesus performs a miracle outside of the land of Israel. You see, the Israelites were very territorial. They knew where their property line stopped and where pagan territory ended. And Jesus did too. And he intentionally went outside of the approved territory. He went off the reservation and he healed a pagan, a non-Jew in non-Jewish territory. It's almost like the Jewish Messiah has invaded foreign territory and planted a flag for his own, his own team. It's an awesome thing. So today's story will be page 693 in the Black Pew Bibles. And this story picks up where the last one left off in verse 29 and continues the same theme. Listen to it beginning in verse, uh, verses 29 through 31. Moving on from there, from Tyre and Sidon, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. So he's going from the coast back to uh, uh, Jewish territory. He went up on a mountain and he sat there and large crowds came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the deformed, those unable to speak, and many others. They put, him at, they put them at his feet and he healed them immediately. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those who were unable to speak now talking. The deformed restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Now we know Jesus was in foreign territory when he was on the Mediterranean coast by Tyre and Sidon. And the Bible says specifically that Jesus left that area and he comes back to the Sea of Galilee. The temptation for us is to think now Jesus is back in Jewish territory. Here's the thing. While the dotted line on the map may show that Jesus is in Jewish territory, the area that he went to was heavily populated with Gentiles. So he had gone from a predominantly Gentile foreign territory to a predominantly Gentile domestic territory. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, Galilee is referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Because that's who lived there. And so he gets there, and what does he do? Um, I like to think I'm a man after God's own heart. He goes up on a mountain. I, I grew up by the beach, so I don't ever want to go to the beach on vacation. I want to go to the mountains. Marcy didn't grow up by the beach. She always wants to go to the beach. So we need to find that perfect place that has beaches and mountains. If you know it, let us know. We'll both be happy. But Jesus gets there and he goes up on a mountain. Why does he go up on a mountain? Because it was his habit to go up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus ostensibly was going up on the mountain to pray. And what happens? People recognize him and they flock to him. And they are all kinds of people coming to him. People with all kinds of problems. Did you see the problems? They can't walk. They can't talk. They're deformed. They're blind. And then if you don't fit any of those categories, it just says in many others. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, my problems are plenty for me to deal with, okay? My problems sometimes, man, sometimes they just get right in front of your eyes and you can't seem to see anything else. How do you like it when on top of your problems, you've got to deal with other people's problems? Does that make you tired thinking about it? It can be. It can be very vexing. And what does Jesus have? Jesus has this whole menagerie of people with all kinds of problems. Crooked limbs, hunchback, can't see, can't talk, can't walk, uh, all kinds of issues. What does Jesus do? He does something amazing. And I don't know if he kind of held his hands up and said one big prayer, but boom! Everybody, no matter what their problem is, is fixed. How do you fix somebody who's deformed? You see the commercials, kids with cleft lip, club feet, whatever it is. And, and it's like Jesus performs automatic plastic surgery. Everybody's fixed. Their whole, whatever their deformity was, whatever their disability is, it's gone. It's eradicated. He does it with a word. 
And what is most amazing about this story is that uh, we kind of see Jesus heal individuals here and there. Here's a whole crowd at once taken care of. And it's incredible because it's not just an individual like the centurion servant or the the Canaanite woman that we just read about who he healed her demon-possessed daughter. It's everyone, a whole group of pagan peoples just like he did in heavily populated Jewish areas. That'll be a point of tension for Jesus here later on. The truth is, when we hear this story, we start to realize that Jesus essentially ran an impromptu hospital. You're sick, you're messed up, you're deformed. I don't know how you ask that question, but he, he says, come to me, I'll fix you up. The story continues as we go into verse 32 with a supernatural feeding because Jesus didn't just run a hospital. Jesus also ran a kitchen. Listen to how it's described in verse 32 through 39. It says, Now Jesus summoned his disciples and he said, I have compassion on this crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. So the disciples said to him, Where in the world are we going to find enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks. He broke them and he kept on giving them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were filled. Then they collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. You hear the story, and the very first thing I think we all do is go, didn't we just hear this story? You know what, you're right. You might not even be on a different page. Chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, feeding of the 5,000. Now, next chapter, feeding of the 4,000. And people who doubt the Scripture's inspiration and God's Uh, superintending the process by which the scriptures were written, say Matthew's a really bad editor. He just, you know, he had all these stories and he got his sources confused. It's really one story and he just kind of repeated it twice. Well, no, that's not true. The stories are similar, but they are different. Here's the first thing, and I think the most significant thing. There are, there are differences in the number, 5,000 versus 4,000. There are differences in the food. With the 5,000, it was five loaves, two fish. With the 4,000, it's seven loaves and a few fish. But the people are different. The feeding of 5,000, predominantly Jewish people. The feeding of the 4,000, he's in Galilee, but he's in Galilee of the Gentiles. Here he is feeding pagan people in mass the same way he fed the Jewish people. Jesus is the one who's concerned about the people, not the disciples. I think for them, they're trying to break some old habits. Because in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, man, you didn't just need to dress right, you needed to be right. I mean, you didn't brush your teeth, you didn't get in. You had a skin condition, you didn't get in. You had a, you had a fever, your little thing here swollen up, you don't get in. Because not only did, was there um, separation by gender, the men could get in further than the women could get in, and then the, the Gentiles were outside. But if you weren't healthy, if you weren't a specimen of prime health, you didn't get in. Because in order to approach God, you needed to be perfect, healthy. And here's the thing that Jesus does that I think is just so interesting. Both in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus does something before both feedings. He heals people. And then he feeds them. He operates a hospital, and then he opens up the kitchen. 
And it's almost like he's saying, you know what? In the old covenant, you needed to be all good to get to God. Nowadays, bring me your deformed. Bring me your sick. Bring me your messed up. Bring me your people who are not perfect and well, and I will take care of them. The temple required wholeness and health for admission. And I think the disciples understood that, and they were hesitant to help with everything that was happening here. Jesus certainly didn't need the disciples' help, so why summon them? I mean, Jesus didn't say, all right, guys, we're going to stand in a circle, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and watch what happens to the bread. That's not what he, Jesus does it all by himself. So why even summon the disciples? Well, there's a couple things. He wants to engage them in the task, and the fact that they still didn't quite get it when just a chapter before Jesus fed 5,000, and Jesus said, you know what, hey, we got a hungry crowd here. They've been with me for three days, these guys, let's feed them. And they're like, Man, Jesus is about to make us do some more work. He's going to start that kitchen up again. Where in the world are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? And I would like to think that if you were at the feeding of the 5,000, and then a chapter later you end up at the feeding of the 4,000, and Jesus says, hey, let's feed them. How are we going to do it? That you would go, ooh, 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 I know, I know, we got you. We don't need, we don't need a supermarket. That's not what the disciples said. Like, we're in the middle of a desert. Where are we going to find food for everybody? And I think there's a reason why Jesus summons the disciples, because he wants to show us the weakness of disciples. We all suffer from Christian amnesia. Has God taken care of you in the past? Absolutely. But you know what? That may not do you a hell of bean of good when you go through difficulty now, because if you forget God's provision in the past, you'll never remember it in the future. See, God is faithful. God will do it. We just forget. We have this strong, quick loss of memory and we forget Jesus' power. That's exactly what happens with the disciples. And they're a little snippy with Jesus. You know, Jesus is like, I'm going to feed them. And they're like, you're crazy. And what's Jesus say? He says, what do you have? How many loaves of bread? Did you see what they answered? Seven loaves and a few fish. Jesus didn't ask them about fish. I mean, there's no... Yes, Master, we're glad to tell you what, you know, what, what we have. They're like, seven loaves and a couple fish. What are you going to do with that? So Jesus asks them about their supplies, and then it takes them from them. And I would just love to know how this happened. When Jesus took it all and he prayed, did the bread, like, explode? I mean, was this, like, some kind of crazy science experience? What was the mechanism? I mean, did you just keep breaking bread and just tearing pieces off, and the pieces kept coming? There's one loaf, you know, I don't know how it happened, but it's, it's a miracle that happens, and it, 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 it grows. And I think there's something that happens here, because you do have two different audiences between the two feedings. Over here, you have the feeding of the 5,000, and I think because it's in a Jewish context, there's the potential that the disciples were thinking, you know, at the end of time, there's going to be a, a banquet. There's going to be a messianic banquet when all of God's chosen people dine with him in eternity. And that's a wonderful thing. That's good. That's going to be what the Jews inherit. Well, then Jesus comes over here. He's in Gentile territory. And you know what he does? He cooks for them, just like he cooked for those people over there. But wait, these are not the covenant people. These are not the Jews. And the disciples are going, hey, listen, these guys were deformed just a few minutes ago. They've got Gentile cooties on top of that. I ain't touching the basket and then taking it back from them. I don't want to touch it. You know, because they're not God's people. These are God's people. And Jesus says, hey, disciples, hold on. You don't want to help? 
don't worry, I got this. I don't really need your help. I just need you to kind of keep your eyes peeled. I want you to see what's going to happen. And Jesus comes over here to this crowd and he puts his arm around all 4,000 of them. And he walks with them and he brings them over here. And he says, what is important is not what your heritage or your ethnicity is. What's important is whether you have faith in me. That's what makes you God's people. And he gives to them the covenant promises that these people wanted to hoard all to themselves. It's the story of you and me. You know, I, yeah, there's starving people in Africa. There's people who don't know the gospel. But you know what? That's not, that's not us in America. You know, yeah, we don't need to send money overseas because, you know, they need to take care of their own. We need to, there's lost people here. Yeah, but there's lost people here who have 25 Bibles in their house and they drive by 15 churches every day and they can listen to Christian radio. And they, we've got so much teaching here, there's even false teaching galore. So you don't like the true stuff, get the fake stuff. You got people over there that don't have anything, no resources, no opportunity to hear the gospel. And we want to sit on our haunches and our comfort and say, man, isn't it great to be blessed by God? Let's count our blessings. And we don't understand that God gives us our blessings, that we may be blessings to others. So on a morning when we focus on missions, Jesus in this passage wants to say, oh, people, I want you to have my heart for people. You know what? We got the flag right here, and that's an important thing for us. We celebrate holidays and we mark important things in the life of our nation. Jesus says, you know what what flag you fly? That one's more important than that one. Because there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that worship at this flag, not at that flag. And that's not a sentiment of anti-Americanism or anti-patriotism. I set off fireworks and I'll fly the flag just as much as anybody else will. And I'll have a great little barbecue. We'll have a cookout. We're going to enjoy that. But Jesus says, friends, your concern has got to be for the world. So three simple but challenging things that I think we see in this passage. And the first is this. Jesus is always ready to serve, satisfy, and save people from all nations. Jesus is always ready to serve, to satisfy, and to save people from all nations. Oh yeah, even if they're not from the right people. Well, those people are savages. They're not part of the covenant people. They're uncircumcised. Parents, you can explain that later. They're not the right people. You know, they don't have Abraham as their father. They don't, even, they, don't even, they don't even celebrate the things that we celebrate. Jesus says, I don't care. If they want me, they get me. If they want my words, if they want my salvation, if they want my forgiveness, I am ready to serve them. I am ready to satisfy their deepest hunger, even beyond the bread and the fish, because I'm ready to save them and to forgive them of their sins. You see, Matthew was a uh, Jewish believer, and he wrote his gospel particularly for Jewish people. There's all kinds of analogies and Old Testament quotations and fulfillment of prophecy that you see in Matthew's gospel that you don't see in any others. Here's one of the things that's most interesting about Matthew's gospel. There's a special place that foreigners play in God's heart. You go back to the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, and you see Jesus' genealogy, and four notorious Gentile women are in Jesus' family tree not women of good reputation. Why does that happen? Because Jesus is inclusive. If you bow the knee and you confess with your heart and you acknowledge your sin, then Jesus is for you. Jesus has a birthday party. You know who gets invited? The wise guys. The magi. You know who the magi are? They're like the people you see on late night TV that you call in and get your horoscope from. They're, you know, a 
astronomer, 1-800-Pisces you know, or whatever. That's who these people are. They're not good Jewish, Torah-loving, Sabbath school-going people. They're pagan unbelievers, but they've seen a sign in the stars, and they come to the Messiah. Foreigners. Matthew chapter 8. The, one of the only people in the entire Jewish gospel, Matthew gospel is uh, the hi- highest praised person is the centurion who happens to be a Roman. Who, he comes to him and says, listen, my servant, he's sick, and I live a long way, a ways away, so we better get going, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? I've never seen such great faith among even the Israelites. Go, let it be done to you according to your desire. So the centurion walks home, and he gets home, and lo and behold, his servant is okay. And he said, when did this happen? And he said, it happened yesterday about so-and-so. And he pulls out his sundial, and he takes a peek at it, and he realizes that when his servant got healthy was the same time he had had the conversation with Jesus. Hundreds of miles, whatever, however many miles, but Jesus said he's healed. The word travels, he's better. Jesus has great faith. The Syrophoenician Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, just a few verses before, a woman who was among the ancient enemies of Israel, and God says, your daughter's healed. She's taken care of. And then even here, in our passage today, The Jews want to celebrate the feast that they get invited to at the end of history. Jesus comes over here and he takes this crowd and he says, Come on in. If you repent and you bend the knee, you're welcome to. You get to come to the Lord's table where the provision is always overflowing. It is prepared for you. So Jesus is always ready to serve, to satisfy, and to save. But number two, Jesus in this episode, by healing and feeding so many makes it very clear that his plan is global. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's not merely a Jewish disciple. He had, in the past, healed individual people, but now, how many people did he heal? How many people were there? We know there were at least 4,000 men, not counting women and children. Jesus just kind of, boom, healed a whole mass full of people. There is no, (laughs) the government couldn't cover that up. And there is no way to cover up a whole crowd of people getting fixed up. Jesus is making an announcement and saying, I am the Lord, the God of all who will exalt me in their hearts. The truth is for Jesus that in turning to the Gentiles, he wasn't turning away from Israel. There would be people from among Israel that would be saved. He's just showing them that his concern is for more than just them. And then here's the kicker for us. Third and final point. The one that I think is perhaps the most challenging is that we are called to a similar ministry. We're called to a similar ministry. Jesus calls us to operate a hospital and and open up a kitchen. And we understand how Jesus healed. And we understood how Jesus fed. He had supernatural power to be able to do that. So how do we heal? How do we heal? And this is not some weird conversation about spiritual gifts. It's not. Um, This is not a plea for all of our young people to go to medical school. How do we heal? It's by coming to a blatantly honest, scriptural, um, common sense admission that people's biggest problem is not what affects their physical body. You know what people's biggest problem is? It's their sin. And the way that we heal people is by providing the potion that can correct what is most wrong with them. You know what's wrong with the world? I can tell you, we can solve all the world's problems here in 10 seconds. You know what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton was asked this, and you know what his answer was? I am. 
people would take more responsibility for their personal sin, we'd realize why our world is so screwed up. And so we have to heal by telling people the message of salvation. There is no healing. There is no balm. There is no cure apart from Christ. So how do we heal? We share the message of the gospel that Jesus can take your deformed people and he can make them pass a beauty pageant. He can take people who, can't, who are mute and he can have them sing in the choir. He can take people who can't walk and he can cause them to walk an extra mile with somebody who asks them to walk one. Jesus does that. He heals and he does it today. He just doesn't do it with a lot of fanfare. He does it through his people that are dedicated to living for his glory. How do we feed? Well, it's interesting, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus fed people. <clears throat> and uh, he, he performed this great miracle. Jesus literally had people eating out of his hand. And then he commences to preaching, which is a great way to ruin a perfectly good potluck. And uh, Jesus starts, starts preaching. And you know what he preaches? It's not like, you know, your best life now. He preaches, uh, if you want to live forever, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Check, please. You know, we're, we're, we're out. Jesus, you had him. That's why Jesus didn't have a PR agent. He, we, he would never, yeah, done work. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? When we talk about feeding people, we're talking about more than filling their bellies. And most Baptists could do with a little less belly filling and a little more soul filling. How do we feed ourselves spiritually? We feed ourselves because we don't live on bread alone, but what? Every word that comes from God's mouth. And so Jesus is showing his heart for the nations. He's saying that we as his people need to be committed to the same kind of healing through the gospel word, but then feeding through the word of God. And if Jesus is committed to this kind of ministry that takes the word of God where it needs to go, not where it's already at and where it's comfortable, we have to ask this question. Those people that we meet in the supermarket that stand in front of us that we try to ignore, and then the person who's behind us, and then the neighbor that lives on side of us, his kid plays his music too loud and he won't fix his disrepaired fence. And then the guy that works in the cubicle next to us or the guy that we see every morning going through McDonald's behind us to get his coffee. For those people, when they're related to us, what does it mean for them to be on the other side of us? For them to be in proximity, what does it mean for, for, for them to be on the other side of me? Are the people that you are around any closer to Christ because they're close to you? And that's the question that Jesus has for his disciples. Because the longer you walk with Christ, there's a calcification that happens. It's the exact opposite of osteoporosis, the weakening of the bones. Instead, what happens is we start to not have anybody that we know that's not a Christian. All of our friends show up in this room on the same time on Sunday morning. Friends, if that's you, how in the world are you going to be faithful to the God who calls you to be a missionary? How in the world are people going to be closer to Christ because they're closer to you? Because that's how Jesus goes about his ministry. He doesn't run a kitchen anymore, and he doesn't run a hospital. He expects to do that through his hands and feet that are called his church. And God gives us the power to do his work. But if we don't work, what gets done? I pray that as we celebrate on this day, our kids being involved in mission, in loving mission, in studying mission, 
that will set the example for our young ones by being even more committed than they are. Join me in prayer, please. God, we thank you for this word, and we know how much we need to be committed to your business. God, it is so easy for us to be comfortable with everything that you've blessed us with, to be comfortable with um, your gospel, your church, and to be so grateful that you saved us and to not give a rip if you ever use us to help someone else be saved. God is not right. And you need to grip our hearts and you need to destroy our, our idols to help us allow our hearts to bleed for those that have yet to trust in Christ. You've told us that if we share, there will be people who believe. We need the boldness to trust you. We need the audacity to speak words of truth. And I pray that you will prick our hearts and help us to understand that we have a responsibility to feed and to heal. In Jesus' name we pray.